always a joy to come by here. I appreciate you folks. And I uh, talked to Brother Brown last night, and he was uh, battling a fever, and so I hope you'll keep him in prayer. He's, he's, he's really not feeling well, and so uh, I know that's a struggle. But here, here's a song off my uh, newest CD called Heaven's Bright Shore back, that I have back there, and I hope you hope you'll enjoy it. Lord knows I'm guilty of living my life like there's always tomorrow for making things right. But our days are numbered Like the hairs on our head No man knows the hour He'll shake hands with death You don't have to go home And live up in glory forever down here for all in this world that's uncertain one thing is clear you don't have to go home but you can't stay here Well, there's a master timekeeper who died on the cross and it breaks his heart knowing hell's gain is his loss but if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life You'll know where you're going If He calls you tonight You don't have to go home And live up in glory But you can't live forever down here For all in this world that's uncertain one thing is clear you don't have to go home but you can't stay here for all in this world that's uncertain one thing is clear you don't have to go home but you can't stay here Amen. Well, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Amen. So we aren't staying here, that's for sure. One more song, and I'll bring the message this morning. Oh, Lord, my God. 
When I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. display then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul his son not sparing sent him to die I scarce can take it in that on the cross his burden gladly bearing he To take away my sin when Christ shall come with a shout of acclamation and take me home what joy shall fill my heart then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great Thou art! Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my Savior God to thee how great thou
Say amen. 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 Take your Bibles and turn this morning to the book of Matthew. It is a joy, as I've said already, to be here, and I appreciate so much the opportunity. I always love coming by Parkview Baptist Church, and you folks are so kind. I like your smiles and your handshakes and friendliness. And some places I go, uh, I declare... I, can't wait to get out of there. Nobody says hello, goodbye, wish you were here, wish you weren't here. I have to look at the bulletin, make sure that's where I'm supposed to be. But uh, not so here, and I appreciate your friendliness and your kindness, and it means so much to me. I'm preaching from Matthew chapter 27 this morning, and look in verse number 45. I'll try to be, not be like the fellow that went off to Yale... And when he got back after the first semester, the pastor asked him if he'd like to say a few words on his experience at Yale. And so he got up and he made an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is. And he spoke on the acrostic Yale. Y means something. A means something. L means something. And E means something. Well, he ended up speaking for 45 minutes on each of those four letters. And so uh, when he sat down three hours later, uh, the pastor said, We are very glad our dear brother did not attend the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. <laughs> so I'm not going to be like him this morning, I guarantee you. I want us to look in Matthew chapter 27 this morning. And what happened in these verses that I'm going to read is actually a prelude to the actual physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Look in verse number 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Now look down in verse number 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion, and they that were with him, watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the opportunity to once again stand behind a pulpit and preach your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've allowed me the privilege to sing today and the opportunity and honor it is to be at this church. And I pray, Lord, that you'll Grant us wisdom and liberty and freedom as we try to preach the Word of God today. May we magnify Your holy name, lift You up. And I pray that there might, if there might be someone here today and they've never been saved by Your marvelous grace, 
I pray that this will be the day that they'll trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About 2,000 years ago or so, give or take a few years, on a skull-shaped hill, outside a city wall on a sunny day, men murdered their maker. They'd given him a phony trial. They had falsely accused him. They had even hired people to come and tell lies in a courtroom about him. They had beaten him black and blue. They'd given him over to the Romans. And then the Romans, they had their time with him. They scourged the very flesh off of his bones. A Roman scourging in those days was a very appalling affair. By the time the average person had been scourged, he was dead, but not the Lord Jesus. It would expose all the organs and rip them out, and it was a fearful way to die. But uh, our Lord's strength was such that even after scourging like that, He was still physically strong enough that day to pick up His cross and carry it halfway to Calvary. Think about that. 33 years old, going through a Roman scourging and still able to carry His cross halfway to Calvary. They had taken Him out on Calvary's hill and they had nailed Him to a cross of wood. Now surely, if He was who He said He was, the eternal, self-existing, second person of the Godhead, the Creator of the universe, uh, the One whom angels worshipped, if that is who He was, surely, at that place called Calvary, there should have been some signs of it, don't you think? Well, there were. Absolutely. First of all, our Lord reached out from that cross and He put His hand upon the sun that day. And then secondly, He reached out from that cross and He put His hand upon the sanctuary that day. And then thirdly, He reached out again from the cross and He put His hand upon the stone that day. And then He also reached out and put His hand upon the sepulcher that day. And last of all, He reached out and He put His hand upon the soldiers that day. Five wonderful miracles a prelude to the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. Even there, in the darkest hour, on that appalling cross, surrounded by all those people that hated Him, jeered Him, sneered Him, mocked Him, and derided Him, there He died in agony, and He died in pain. Yet he still demonstrated the fact that our Lord was God and that he was in complete control no matter what they did to him. Remember this, they did not kill him on that cross. 
Oh no. They did not kill our Savior on the cross. In fact, they did not have the power to kill Jesus on the cross. He could have killed every one of them. With a blink of an eye, he could have wiped out the whole crowd. No, they didn't kill him. When it was all over and the last scripture had been fulfilled, the Bible says he dismissed his own spirit from his body. And when they came, he was dead already. They, they couldn't believe it. A person who was crucified usually lasted two or three days. Strong people lasted the best part of a week. It was an unspeakable agony. But after six hours, he dismissed his spirit and went on home. Let's look at that first miracle, okay? He put his hand upon the sun. Look in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Think about that. There was darkness from 12 high noon when the sun was at its zenith that day until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There was an uncanny darkness descending upon the whole land. North, south, east, and west. The whole land was plunged into total unbelievable darkness. Now, you know the sun had leaped from its bed that morning as it had all those other times before that our Lord had lived on this earth. During the past, and I counted, I guess, about 12,235 days that Jesus had lived down here on one of that, the sun's planets in space, don't you think that the sun must have taken a great interest in that? It would get up in the morning. It would smile down on uh, the land where lived its Lord. And it would say to itself, I wonder what He's going to do today. <laughs> and at night, the sun would tuck itself into its uh, uh, bed into the distant west and pull the blanket of night up over its head. And it would say to itself, Oh, it's been a marvelous day today. Why, I saw him cleanse a leper today. I saw people run away and stay as far away as they could from that loathsome leper. But he put his hand out and he touched that man who was defiled by leprosy. And he cleansed that leper. That man had never been touched like that since he was pronounced a leper. And the leprosy fled. And he said, I saw him cleanse a leper today. I saw him feed a hungry multitude today with a little lad's lunch. I saw the little lad give his lunch to Jesus. And Jesus took those two little fishes and small loaves of bread and he made a banquet for all of those people on the hillside. What a day it's been today. That's probably what the son said. 
And on this particular morning, it climbed back into the sky like it had all those other days and all those other times. And it looked down from its lofty heights to see what was happening today on planet Earth and upon a place that was called Calvary. And the sun saw men murdering its maker. And for three hours, it hid its face in shame. The hymn writer said it this way, Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when the incarnate maker died for man the creature's sin. And it was not until three o'clock that afternoon that the sun could summon up enough resolution for one more look and peep down just in time to see Jesus die. I'm telling you, it was a mighty miracle. I looked this up. The sun is a great sphere. It is 864,000 miles in diameter. It is 334 quadrillion miles of violently hot gas. It weighs two octillion tons. Hydrogen being fused into helium at temperatures ranging at 25 million degrees Fahrenheit. What, a, what an object. And as He hung there upon that cross, Jesus simply reached out and snuffed it out like a candle. And instantly there was total darkness. It was a midday midnight. Now, that is not a natural eclipse. Don't believe that. Sometimes the moon, you know, orbiting the earth will block out the sun's rays and it will cause an eclipse in some parts of the world, but not all the world. And those kinds of eclipses, well, they, they'll only last at the most, maybe seven minutes at the most. Whatever it was that happened at Calvary lasted for three hours. For three long hours, all the land and every mountaintop and every valley with their, uh, uh, and every city and every village, men crept around their homes with candles lit in order to find their way. It must have been terrifying that day. They must have thought that the end of the world had come. It was a terrible darkness. It was the kind of darkness described with Abraham when God was making His covenant with Abraham. It was the kind of darkness that could be felt. Have you ever felt darkness? The kind of darkness that's described as a great darkness... I remember once years ago uh, being uh, in the great Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. How many have ever been to Mammoth Cave? Raise your hands. You know what I'm talking about then. Uh, you've been there. You've probably gone down in that cavern and, and they snuff out the lights and you cannot see the hand in front of your face. It's a, it's a weird uh, feeling 
Now you go down there with all those stalagmites and stalactites growing up and hanging down everywhere you look and you turn a corner and you go deeper down into the cave and all of a sudden they turn the lights out and it was darkness that could be felt. I didn't know which way was in. I didn't know which way was out. I could not see the hand in front of my face. I could feel it, the heat from my hand. But that's it. Now you couldn't see anything. They turned the lights back on again and there you were, oriented once again. But for three long, dark, dreadful hours, the earth was plunged into darkness. And people had a foretaste of what a lost eternity would be like. The blackness of darkness forever. Not three hours, not three days, not three weeks. A blackness of darkness forever. Can you imagine that? And then as the one final act of kindness before he went back home to heaven, Jesus turned the light back on again. And the first mighty miracle of Calvary happened. He put his hand upon the sun. But then number two. Follow with me now. He put His hand from the cross. He put His hand on the sanctuary. Look in verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. Now, that's a miracle of tremendous significance if you are Jewish. Because the Jewish people, all of the religious activities of Jewish people would come to a head on the annual day of atonement. That is when God would make full reckoning of His people over the sins over the past year. And on that day, the high priest of Israel, after the most elaborate of precautions, he was allowed to pass beyond the veil of the temple that divided between the holy place and the most holy place. And he was allowed to pass the veil and enter into the holy of holies, they called it. That was the high point of all the religious activity for the Jews for the whole year. I'm talking about a whole year. It all centered around that veil, that big veil that divided two compartments of the sanctuary. When God reached down from heaven, He took hold of that veil and He tore it in two. And when He did that, He was signifying uh, the Jewish religion sanctioned by divine revelation and by almost 1,500 years of Jewish religious history was now null and void. It had its day, and now it was about to be replaced. No human hand, not a single human hand could rent that veil. Nobody could. Do you realize it wasn't rent from the bottom to the top? It was rent from the top down to the bottom. It signaled a change in God's method of doing things on this planet. 
Now, the old way of sacrifices and offerings, rules and rites and regulations with tabernacles and temple codes and commandments, all of that was over now. God said, I'm doing away with all that. That's not around anymore. Now there's a thing, that's a thing of the past. These things were no longer of any significance. They'd been replaced by this reality. Now remember, the veil of the temple was 60 feet high. It was as thick as a man's hand. It had hung there between the temple and the tabernacle for 1,500 years. In fact, it was intended to be a barrier between the holy place and the most holy place. Men were allowed into the holy place if they were priests. But nobody was allowed beyond the veil into the most holy place. There was the Ark of the Covenant where it sat. It was made of incorruptible wood that was overlaid with purest gold. It had a cover which was made out of a great slab of gold. And out of that same slab of gold were figures of the cherubim with their wings outspread over the seat called the mercy seat. And their faces were turned inwards and downwards. So those cherubim were always occupied with the blood that was on the mercy seat. And there it hung century after century after century, all those years, all those, all those uh, uh, winters, all those springs, all those summers, its great purpose had one great purpose, to keep people out. And once a year, as I told you, that on the Day of Atonement, the high point of all Jewish Religious activity, the high priest was allowed to go beyond the veil and into the immediate presence of God. And he had to take a basin of blood with him. And he had to dip his hand in the basin and sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat. And that's the very heart of God's message to us today. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. I often think about that priest who's going to go about his activities before he enters into that holy place. And you can imagine his horror as he sees the veil for the first time. The veil was rent in two. He had never seen that before. Now it hangs a lifeless rag. That's all it is. God's saying to His people, I've changed the way of doing things now. For 1,500 years that veil had stood there saying to people, Keep out. Don't come in here. Don't you dare come in here. I am holy and you are sinful. And I want you to stay out. And He rent the veil at Calvary. He changed his way of doing things. Now he says, come on in. I'm glad you're here. I tell you what, I'm glad I live on this side of Calvary, aren't you? Come in whenever you like, he says. Stay as long as you like. Talk about anything you like. Come on in and sit down and, and, and talk to me. 
I'm so glad you came. Tell me, how are things going at home? How are things happening there? How's your husband doing? How's your wife doing? How are your children? How are things going at work? Tell me about your church. Just talk to me. That's how he is now. Didn't used to be that way, but it is now. He put his hand upon the sanctuary. Then number three, he put his hand upon the stones. Look in verse 51. At the end of it, it says, And the rocks rent. Now you realize just a week before all this happened in Jerusalem, everything was, was joyful and triumphant. And all the people were shouting and they thought the Messiah had come. And they thought He was going to set up His kingdom. And they thought the great day had come and they were shouting, Blessed be the King that comes in the name of the Lord. But wait a minute, the leaders didn't like that. And let me tell you something. In 2019, there are still people who would murder our Maker today. They don't like Jesus. There's an element of our crowd out here today that have no use for Jesus Christ. Still, after all these years, you'd think they'd change, but no, it's getting worse. There's more people and more laws setting up to, to rule out Jesus and get rid of the Bible and, and uh, get rid of prayer and, and all these things to get, just, to, just to obliterate anything about Jesus. And the leaders didn't like it. Tell them to shut up. They're quiet. They're, if they're quiet, the very stones are going to cry out. Blind Bartimaeus, where are you at? He gave sight to your eyes and you're nowhere around. How about Zacchaeus? Where are you at? He Didn't he transform your life? Oh, he's not to be found. Jarius, where are you at? Didn't I give you back your little girl that was dead? How about Simon Peter? Where are you at? Why aren't you here? You ought to be here by the cross preaching here uh, uh, all that was done by Jesus. I'll tell you where he is. He's covering with shame because he denied the Lord three times. And the foul, cursing language he used from that old fisherman days came out of old Simon Peter. Well... You all aren't here to do it, so I'll get the stones to cry out. And that's what that word rent, and the rocks rent. They split, and they rent all, all around the hill. No wonder the centurion shook in his shoes. He put his hand upon the sun. He put his hand upon the sanctuary, and he put his hand upon the stones. But then number four, he put his hand upon the sepulcher. Verse 52. And the graves were open. I find this a very fascinating verse of Scripture. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Arose. And came out of the graves after His resurrection. And went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Isn't it interesting that Matthew treats that almost like a footnote? You know what we'd have done? We'd have put it on a, on a big old banner with banner headlines. People coming out of graves. Look at this. But Matthew treats it like a footnote. You know why I think he did that? 
Everybody knew about it. It wasn't news. Everybody knew all these people coming out of their graves. Everybody, it wasn't news to anybody. When Paul stood before King Agrippa trying to defend himself against false accusations made against him, but above and beyond that, trying to win that poor lost man's soul to Jesus. You know what Paul said? My Lord King, this thing was not done in a corner. This is public knowledge. Everybody knew about this. Everybody wasn't, wasn't anything new. News came in from all over the country. Somebody has been fooling around in the graveyard, they say. The cemetery looks like, like a mess. Every plot of, of, of sacred ground, graves are open everywhere. People would flock from villages and towns and they would stop and they would stare at all these cemeteries and all these graves. The corpses and the skeletons, heaps of bones and dust. Oh, there's Uncle Samuel. He's not looking so good, is he? And then there's Aunt Mary. She looks quite nice, doesn't she? <laughs> and then uh, and the talk of the town and the country and the great mystery. The graves were open. What a mystery. And on Sunday morning when Jesus arose, they arose. Many got up out of their graves and headed toward the city of Jerusalem. Can't you imagine? That must have been quite a sight. Think about all the encounters that happened. I can see a man going home after a hard day's work and he's thinking about his supper and a man appears out of the gloom and he says, Shalom! And the man would say back, Shalom to you. Do I know you? And he would say, you should know me, I'm Abraham. And the fellow says, Abraham who? And you know, Father Abraham, that's who I am. The man runs, runs off to his house and uh, closes the door, goes to his bedroom and plunges underneath his bed. And his wife wonders what's wrong with him. And he says, I just saw a ghost. Oh, but that wasn't a ghost. That was Abraham. That was Abraham. Do you know why the Old Testament saints of God wanted to be buried in Canaan? You ever wondered why? I think they wanted to be there when this happened. When this very event happened. I want you to bury me in the promised land because I want to be there when it happens. And it happened. He put his hand upon the sepulcher. But then he put his hand upon the soldiers. Look in verse 54. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus, saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Did you notice that little phrase there, they feared greatly? You know who's, who, the, the, who that's talking about, don't you? Now, there were, these were men who were afraid of nothing. Oh, no. These men had marched into every capital in that part of the world. They weren't afraid of anything. But here the Bible says they feared greatly. Sometimes I think about that centurion. You ever think about him? I picture to myself 
as a little boy growing up in Rome or one of those suburbs, and he would go to school and listen to those great stories about the empire, about its vastness and its power and its glory and its people. And like, like a whole lot of kids in his day, he would look forward to a Roman holiday. Now on a Roman holiday, everyone went to a circus. Not, not our kind of circus, you understand. They didn't go to see performing elephants. Oh no, not at this circus. They wanted to see the real thing. They wanted, to, wanted the tigers to be good and hungry. They wanted the lions to be famished and starving. And they would like to see a thinly clad prisoner captured in battle, given a toy sword to fight that lion and to be torn into shreds. Well, they loved that. You say, that's gruesome. Well, that's what they did back then. They like to see two strong gladiators fight right down to the moment of death. And he stands over the shoulder and he looks up into the stands where Caesar sits and waits for a thumbs up or a thumb down. That's what they like to watch. To be a soldier, you learn to gamble. And you learn to drink and you learn to swear. And they then uh, promoted to centurion. Boy, that was a great day. Palestine was his new promotion. Well, he didn't want Palestine. That was not the preferred uh, 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 way to climb the ladder. He gets off the ship and goes to his new post, which is Jerusalem. And all the fighting and all the, all the rebelling against Rome, he gets to Jerusalem. And the governor tells him about the three men to be crucified. And one says, he's the king of the Jews. Show him, soldier, how we treat somebody that says they are the king of the Jews. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. Only he could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. Amen. So they beat him up. And they took him to Calvary, and there they crucified him. And the Bible says they sat down. It was a finished work. And it was done with carpenter's tools. Sin could not express itself in any worse way than it did at Calvary. Calvary is God's indictment of the human race. But by His grace, He's turned the cross of Christ into our means of salvation. And so what did they do? They crucified Him and they sat down and watched Him there. That was at 9 o'clock in the morning. At 3 o'clock that afternoon, they said, This is the Son of God. This centurion went away from the cross but he went away from the cross with Christ in his heart. I guess in time, in what I think anyway, he got shipped back home and discharged from the army and stopped his tour of duty. He goes back to his native town and wanders around town like he 
uh, probably did, and people would say, Hey, what's different about you? You're not like you used to be. You're, you're, what happened to you? And he would say, you know what? I met a man at a place called Calvary. He was dying on a cross. And that man was God's man. And that God changed my life. There were five miracles that happened at Calvary. One miracle can happen today. Right now, you can say, this is the Son of God. You can leave here knowing that Jesus died on the cross for you. So that you could go to heaven. So that you could have your sins forgiven. So that you could have joy unspeakable and full of glory until you get to heaven. And have what God has promised you on this earth. He did that on Calvary just for you. Five important miracles I hope you never forget. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll stir hearts this morning. May we, as we have this invitation, examine our own heart. And Lord, if there's some fault or failure that we are going through, I pray that we'll confess it to you today. You're powerful enough to forgive, forget, and lead us through life. Lord, I pray that you'll help us as we have this invitation. We love you today and thank God for what you did for us on Calvary. Help us to appreciate it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand this morning as we sing what number? 546. 546 while we stand and sing this hymn of invitation. Would you?